0: Thank you, choir. Every Bible is going to be turning to Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4, and we will finish up today a first collection of Jesus' teaching in Mark's Gospel. I mentioned some weeks back when we moved into chapter 4 that these 34 verses are. Are Mark's first collection where Jesus is teaching. Now, he's mentioned a number of times that Jesus has been teaching and healing and performing miracles, but he hasn't recorded those particular things. And here in chapter 4, he's devoted 34 verses to an extended teaching time that Jesus has been giving by the seed. And so, several weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the sower, or really, it's the parable of the soils. And then Jesus talked about the parable of the lamp and the measure. And then this week we will finish talking about the parable of the seed and specifically of the mustard seed. Uh, some of you I have, I've gotten to know are farmers, and you, you use seeds, you utilize seeds. Some of you are gardeners, some of you like to plant things. I like the thought of being able to plant things uh, and see them come to life, and I've yet to, to find that skill. I can plant them. But not, not a lot of times, things don't often happen thereafter. But uh, seeds are a common part of our life. And I looked up just some uh, particular uh, gestation periods for some seeds. How long does it take seeds to take root and to produce? Well, for most seed, it doesn't, doesn't take very long. Like we plant flowers every year, we expect them to come up. Or if we plant a crop, we expect to harvest that crop in that same growing season, but not all seeds uh, flower like that. Not all seeds produce that speedily. Let me tell you, for instance, about one called the giant Himalayan lily. Anybody have any of these in their yard? I didn't figure. The giant Himalayan lily, while it grows, only flowers once every five to seven years. So the plant is there, but it doesn't produce these beautiful lilies, but only once every five to seven years. Well, there's one called the curringy plant, which I don't know if I said that right or not, but I pronounced all the letters in the name, so we're going to assume that I did. It flowers once every 12 years. It's a plant that's not native to our country but it flowers. It's a very small plant, and it, and it produces these very fragile bulbs, these beautiful little little blooms. But it only does it every twelve years, and so if you have one of those, you know you have to wait around for a while before this flower produces its bloom. Well, the last one I'm bringing your attention to is called the Queen of the Andes. This is a very large cactus type plant. And the queen of the Andes only flowers once every 80 to 150 years. And when it flowers, it shoots this huge sprout up off the top of it, about 8 to 12 feet tall. But it only flowers every 80 to 150 years. And if you were to plant a queen of the Andes cactus in your garden, expecting that in due time, that is in a few days to a week, that you would start seeing the fruits of what you expected, you would find yourself disappointed. You would find yourself thinking, this plant has malfunctioned. This plant isn't working right. Why is this thing not flowering? And I think sometimes we forget that seeds flower differently. Seeds don't all produce at the same rate at the same time. And so the time of flowering or the time of blooming can sometimes be deceptive. Which is exactly what Jesus is going to teach us this morning about faith and about the kingdom of God. Sometimes we are looking for something immediate. Sometimes we are looking to put a seed in the ground and we want tomorrow morning for there to be a flower there. And Jesus is going to say it doesn't always work like that. And then I think, I think what Jesus is going to show us is that it's more like the queen of the Andes, that cactus plant that only blooms every 80 to 150 years. Sometimes it takes much longer than we are thinking. But let's turn to the scripture. If you have your Bibles open and are able, I'll invite you to stand. Mark chapter 4, we will pick up reading in Verse 26 says, and he said to them, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle, because the harvest is come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make a nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. God, we confess together that this is your word, and it is a good word because it is your word. We ask now that you would come and open it to our hearts and to our minds, cause us to see your wondrous glory in it. Help us to understand and to see the beauty of the gospel, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, you see on your notes, the main idea this morning is that God's kingdom, while beginning small, will grow large. And it will not show itself fully until the end of time. That God's kingdom, even though it began very small, and by very small, I mean a homeless Galilean preacher, even though the kingdom of God began small, what Jesus will show us is that it will grow large larger than any other kingdom but it will not happen until the end of time. <clears throat> and so this parable is a warning against understanding the signific or misunderstanding the significance of the proclamation of the kingdom. It's a warning against underestimating the significance of proclaiming the gospel Now some of us, I'll say up front, and I'll come back to this, some of us have a hard time sharing the gospel. Some of us have a hard time evangelizing. And I think sometimes we have a hard time sharing the gospel because we don't see immediate fruit. Some of us have a hard time sharing the gospel because we don't quite fully believe in the message. We don't see that plant, and so we have a hard time believing what we are saying, and so Jesus is warning against underestimating the power of the proclaimed Word of God. And however unimpressive its initial impact may be, Jesus says there's something unimaginable on the backside. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us to say there is the entire power of God contained in the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's just words that we say, and yet Jesus says, don't underestimate the incredible divine force that is contained in that message. Mark is going to help us to see through Jesus' teaching How and why to understand the hiddenness of the kingdom of God. Jesus first brought this out in the parable of the soils. He said, to you it's been made known the secrets of the kingdom, but to them everything is is hidden. The kingdom is hidden. He's helping us to see and to understand this hiddenness. What seems small now, what seems unnoticed now, what seems insignificant now will not always be so. What seems insignificant now, Jesus is saying, don't misunderstand, don't underestimate, because it will be of soul significance in the time to come. And this point is foundational to our study of Mark. Didn't want to do that in the microphone. As we will see in the coming weeks and months, without this understanding that what is small and insignificant now becomes something of soul significance. If we miss that point, then the cross won't make sense. Because on the cross, what we see is a homeless, itinerant Galilean preacher put onto a cross and heckled. If you are really who you say you are, then you could come down. If you really had the power of God, you could take yourself off the cross. And yet, we know, because Mark has shown us, or will show us, and we know that it was by God's grace and power that he remained on the cross. But if we don't have this idea that the world does not understand that, if we don't have this idea that the small seed becomes something unimaginable, then the cross doesn't make sense. It doesn't make complete sense. And so what seems small now, what seems unnoticed now, what seems insignificant now, Jesus says, will become entirely significant. And so I want to look at, firstly, I want to look at the parable of the seed growing. We see this in verse 26. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and sleeps and rises day and night. The seed sprouts and grows, and the man does not know how. A farmer plants his seed, and he understands that if he puts a seed in the ground, and the soil is fertile, he can expect a harvest. And so he doesn't sit there and cause the seed to grow. He doesn't sit there and massage the seed or, or speak to it, giving it instruction. He just knows that if I put the seed in the ground and cover it with dirt and water it, the earth does its work and the seed does its work and produces a harvest. And so Jesus' point here is that gospel growth comes from God alone. That the growth of the gospel or salvation comes from God alone. As we share the message of the kingdom, as we proclaim the gospel far and wide, we are not causing men and women and boys and girls to be saved. I think a lot of times that trips us up too with evangelism. We think if I don't share the gospel right, if I don't see somebody make a decision right then and there, then I've done something wrong. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't put more, uh, don't, don't assume that you have more to do with this than you actually do. It's our responsibility to be the sower, back, at the, back up at the beginning of chapter 4. If we are in Christ, we are to be the sower who sows the seed widely. On the fertile, tilled up soil, and on the beaten down path over here, we put the seed everywhere, because it's God who gives the growth. We don't know when and how God works in the hearts of women and men. And this short parable illustrates a number of things for you and I. It shows us the power of the taught word. You ever wonder why, week in and week out, you gather to listen to somebody talk to you for 30 or 40 or an hour sometimes, just getting you ready? It could happen. See, so you weren't listening. But, but every week we gather to hear the taught word. Why is it that we think there's something significant about opening this book and having someone proclaim it with authority? Because Jesus is saying the power is not in anything we do. It's not in our manipulating of a message. The power is in the word itself. And so Jesus is highlighting that. It's also illustrating that there is a necessary time required for gospel maturity. We don't all mature overnight. We don't all become polished followers of Jesus overnight. As a matter of fact, a lot of us have a long way to go. You see, there's a, there's a word called sanctification. Sanctification. And really that big word, what it means is the the continual process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And so at salvation, we are justified in the sight of God, which means that God treats us as if we are fully righteous, even though we are still sinful, even though we still struggle with sin. God treats us as fully righteous, and because we are justified in His sight, The Holy Spirit begins to sanctify us. And to sanctify, He's he's making us more like Jesus. That comes through hearing the Word primarily. It comes through prayer. It comes through personal one-on-one discipleship. And by God's grace, that process of being sanctified begins when I come to know Jesus, and it doesn't end until I go to be with Jesus. And so, the whole time I am a Christian on this earth, I should be growing to be more like Jesus. Now, at the point at which I die, if I die in Christ, the word we assign to that is, then I will be glorified, which means, because I have been justified and sanctified, I will now be made entirely without sin because of Jesus in heaven. That's yet to come, and yes, sometimes I think we, we think we are, we think we've been glorified sometimes now, and yet that's yet to come. And Jesus is telling us there is a necessary time for gospel maturity. And so I, I have said this to a number of you over my time here, but there are people in this church, there are Christians in this church who are baby Christians, I don't mean age-wise, I mean comprehension-wise. There are people who are spiritual infants. There are some spiritual children. There are some spiritual teenagers and adolescents. There are some spiritual young adults. And then there are some spiritual adults. And at every point along the way, we all need each other. When a person comes to faith in Christ for the first time, they are a spiritual infant. And so they need someone who's not just going to give them a pat on the back and say, hey, good job. They need somebody who's going to prep a bottle, warm it up, make sure it's not too hot, give it to them, change their diapers, and help them grow. Figuratively, of course. But that's the kind of discipleship that a spiritual infant needs. And Jesus is saying, there is a time required for the growth of the gospel to mature. There is a process of us growing to be more like Jesus. And so he's highlighting that with the seed. He puts the seed in the ground and he knows that it needs time and so he goes to bed. Day and night, it says. Additionally, he's highlighting the emphasis is on God giving the growth. Discipleship is essential. Sharing the gospel is essential. Correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness to quote 2 Timothy 3.16, all of that is essential. But ultimately, this all rests on God. The growth comes from God. And so, while there is an emphasis on God giving the growth, in this particular parable, there is a de-emphasizing of man's abilities to affect spiritual growth. This has a particular application to me. When I come in here every single week and preach or teach on Wednesday nights, I feel the weight of your spiritual lives before God. Y'all's too. I feel that weight. And I feel the requirement of God to rightly teach you the Bible. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I can't affect anything in your heart. And if I begin to think that I can, then I have gone off the rails. It's my responsibility to give you the word of God, the truth of God, and to leave the results to God. And the same is true for you when you evangelize and when you disciple. You, as a follower of Jesus, have a responsibility to hold fast primarily to this. To give people the truth of God's word and to trust that God will do in that person's heart what he intends to do, because he will. And so like the other parables that we have heard in this section, this one deals with the heard word. The word has been proclaimed. How is it heard? How are we responding to? The parable of the soils stressed the different ways that people hear. Some people never hear because Satan snatches it away. Some people hear only long enough to where it's comfortable. Some people hear until something else from the world chokes it out. And then some people truly hear and believe and respond. Last week, the parable of the lamp stressed that the purpose of the gospel's clarity was for those who do hear. The gospel is not a lamp stuck under here so nobody can see it. It's right here. And then the parable of the measure was about the importance of responding rightly. And so now this present parable of the growing seed stresses the marvelous process of bearing fruit that results from the well-heard word. Let me say that a different way. According to this parable, the seed of the gospel does not fail to produce fruit. So in your life, if you are in Christ, you should be able to look back over your life with Him and see how He has been growing you. If you have walked with Jesus for 30 years and yet you are no different, this is a stark warning to you. Because the gospel does not work like that. According to this parable, Jesus is saying the gospel does not fail to produce the fruit of holiness that is being made more like Jesus. It does not fail to produce that in our lives. And so this parable goes a long way to encourage faithful Christians to preach the gospel and even if you never see fruit, Even if you never see anyone come to know Jesus, even if you never see anybody grow in the gospel, this parable is is an encouragement to keep at it. It's not yours to affect the change. It's not your job to save anybody. That's God's job. But if we think, if we start wrongly thinking, that if I'm not seeing anybody come to Christ, if I'm not seeing anybody choose Jesus, then I'm I'm obviously doing something wrong, so I'm going to stop. That's wrong. Jesus' point is to remind us that we cannot control the soil onto which the seed falls, nor can we control the process of germination and growth. We don't control any of that. The only thing that we control is whether I'm going to be obedient and share the gospel with the world. There's a missionary in, in, in Baptist history named William Carey. I mentioned to him some time back that he stood up and asked about is is the is the mandate to go with the gospel still in effect and an older man at that time said no it's not but William Carey understood the gospel and understood the great commission and went with the gospel to India took his family along the way and he suffered he suffered greatly He lost children, ultimately lost his wife, and for seven years saw no gospel fruit. Imagine that. You've left your homeland, you've gone to a part of the world that's poverty stricken and has nothing of what you're used to. Your family has suffered physical illness and loss and death, and for seven years you see no fruit. Jesus says, we do not control the soil. We do not control the growth. All we know is that we have been given the commission to go and preach the gospel and make disciples. And what this parable reminds us along with so many other places in scripture is that God will be faithful to bless his word. And so after seven years, William Carey saw his first convert. He saw the gospel take hold. He saw the gospel come to life. And yet it came at such an incredible cost to him. But he understood, I don't control the seed. I don't control the soil. I can't control the circumstances in my life. All I know is that God has called me to faithfully proclaim this word. And he will handle the results. A pastor said, this parable is about rightly understanding and responding to the period of apparent inaction of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we can look at the world, sometimes we can look at our church, sometimes we can look at a mission trip, or anything specific, and we can say, nothing seems to be happening. Or we can observe the world, our church, or anything else, and say, what's really going on? Are we just going about these emotions? What's Happening, and Jesus is saying, Don't underestimate what the gospel is doing, even when it doesn't seem like it's doing anything. Despite appearances to the contrary, the kingdom is growing, and the harvest will come. But hear me well, brothers and sisters the harvest of God will come in God's time and in God's way, and human effort only accords with God's work when it's in line with God's work. If I'm going to put out all my effort to try and make something happen for God, I better make sure all my effort is in line with this. There are too many, too many examples in the Bible of men and women who try to help God out by doing something that he either hasn't said to do or violates his word, and they wind up harming themselves. A very clear example is Abraham. God said to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants are going to number even more than the stars. And yet, Isaac took 25 years to show up. 25 years. And so along the way, Abraham loses faith. And Sarah comes to him and says, look, let's handle this on our own. Let's help God out. Here's Hagar. And if you know the story, you know that not only did that not help, it actually harmed their family. It didn't derail God's plan. God said, you can make all the efforts you want to make, but it will happen in my time, in my way, and it will come through obedience. It will not come through disobedience. And so it, it is a warning for us to think. It is a warning for us against thinking. God's not being active. That God's not doing something. That proclaiming the gospel, even though it may not get us any immediate results, it's a warning against underestimating the power of that message because it is God's message. And so this applies also to spiritual growth. We can't judge a person, a Christian, by anything other than God's standards of maturity. God says there is a time needed for spiritual growth. And it doesn't always happen according to the standards that we put on it. God gives that growth as He will. Well, this leads us into the parable of the mustard seed in verse 30. He says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? or What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed. Well, the emphasis here is on the juxtaposition or the, or the comparison, the unlikely pairing of the smallest of seeds and the largest of garden plants. It's a, it, the focus is on the transformation. The focus primarily isn't on how small the seed is or how large the plant is. The focus is on the transformation. It's meant to draw attention to what happens to that seed. It's quite something to think that the smallest of all seeds, which seeds in general are fairly small, but then you start thinking about the smallest of the small things, it's quite something to think that an incredibly small seed becomes a garden plant that's 10 to 12 feet tall in one growing season. We're not talking about uh, the the, the queen of the Andes plant that sprouts a 12-foot flower every 150 years. I can expect that to take 150 years. But the mustard seed produces a plant that's 10 to 12 feet tall in one season. That's incredible growth for any seed, but particularly for the smallest of the seeds. And so the point is, the unexpected growth and size of that very small seed. There's another saying, great oaks from little acorns grow. It was hard and difficult for people to see how Jesus, a homeless itinerant preacher from Galilee, it was hard for them to see how Jesus could be the savior of the world. He had no power, he had no credentials. He had no degrees, no training, no army behind him. He had no social standing from which to draw from. Among the religious elites, he seemed the most unqualified. Among the powerful, he seemed the weakest. Among the wealthy, he seemed the most in need. You see, he seemed to be small and inconsequential, he seemed unlikely. You see, in a similar way, sometimes we look at the problems of the world, the problems in our own lives, and we wonder sometimes, how can believing in Jesus fix all of this? How is he the answer? Sometimes it's hard for us to fathom that believing in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection can really fix the problems in our lives, much less the problems in our world. Problems such as physical suffering, marital strife, infidelity, anger, hatred, murder, hunger and starvation, homelessness, poverty, adoption, abortion, orphan care. There are so many things broken in our world and the depth of their brokenness sometimes is overwhelming and it sometimes is hard for us to think how can believing in a message be the answer? Jesus' point is to remind us of the truth of the gospel that what seems insignificant And small is actually not so at all. What seems to be insignificant and small, how does someone who's struggling with poverty and with physical affliction, how does saying, believe on the name of Jesus, how does it fix that? And Jesus is saying, don't miss the insignificance of what's contained in that message. Those with gospel ears to hear, And eyes to see, understand. I can't make you understand. This is something that comes only from God. But when we don't have Jesus' concept of the gospel in our minds, when we are not getting the gospel from Jesus and allowing Him to explain how it works, we will falter in our faith when we consider the visible effects of the gospel now. A lot of us tend to do that. We tend to evaluate the effectiveness of the gospel by what we see it produce. We tend to evaluate the usefulness of the gospel in our lives by how much it helps us in whatever situation we're in. If I'm struggling with sin, I try to believe in Jesus, and when that doesn't work, I think, well, I must be believing wrongly, or he's just not going to help. And when this happens, it harms our evangelism and our discipleship. When we don't understand the smallness of God's kingdom as Jesus explains it here. We will have no confidence in evangelizing the world and calling each other to faithful living. When I don't understand the smallness of God's kingdom as Jesus is explaining it. Then I'm going to have no confidence to go out and evangelize the world among whom Jesus says I'll face rejection. There will be people in the world, Jesus says, who will not only not accept the gospel, but who will hate you for it. And that goes against some of the things we hold most dear. I don't want to be rejected, and I don't want to be hated. And yet, if we don't understand the true nature of God's kingdom as Jesus is teaching it, we'll never evangelize and disciple. And so these two parables, the parable of the seed growing and the, the, the transformation of the seed, these two things taken together warn us against underestimating the significance of proclaiming the gospel. You see, Jesus says, sometimes we think about the proclamation of the gospel as something very small. <sighs> Just sharing a message. That can sometimes seem small and small. And, insignificant. and Jesus says, yet it's like a mustard seed. Something so small, something so inconsequential becomes something that you never imagined. So just like in the context, it has two meanings. The first meaning is Jesus himself, the homeless itinerant preacher who would be nailed to a cross and his lifeless dead body put into a grave would become the mustard seed that flowers into the tree of life. Do you know how many homeless preachers that history remembers? Not many. There is something different entirely about Jesus. And what he's saying is, even though his life may have seemed to the world small and inconsequential, it becomes the tree of life in Revelation 22 that is for the healing of all the nations. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, What often seems small and inconsequential, that is, the sharing of Jesus from one to another, that becomes, by God's grace, salvation. It's not ours to affect, it's not ours to talk people into, it's ours to share and trust that God will do something. And so what was begun in this Galilean ministry of Jesus will, by the power of God, one day fulfill Revelation 21 that I read earlier. Behold, I am making all things new, God said. You see, the Word of God in its smallness does an indescribable work of largeness that we can hardly even fathom. And so if we believe that that's true about the Word of God, He has given us 66 books containing His Word. And if we believe that the Word of God has that much power, we ought to be people of this Word. And so how do we reflect and apply this? Well, first I I want to just say outright, we need Jesus. Unequivocally. This is the end of Jesus' first extended block of teaching in Mark's gospel. He'll bring us to another part where he records Jesus' teaching, but this is the end of the first one. And here are some major takeaways. God's mission in the world is to establish the kingdom of God. We saw that from the get-go of Mark. That's That's why Jesus showed up, to establish God's kingdom. We see that here, that through the proclamation of the gospel... The kingdom is established. But secondly, we see that God's method for establishing the kingdom is the sharing and the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes we would like God to just say, Hey, whoever's willing to tote heavy rocks to build this wall for the castle, show up in the parking lot at 2 p.m. Because I can do that. And yet God says, we're not building a physical castle. We're not building a physical kingdom on this world. God says, the way that I am going about establishing my kingdom is as faithful Christians share the gospel. And third, we see that God promises total success. So many doubt the power of the shared word of God. And yet God has promised it won't fail. Some other things to note from this is that the kingdom is covered currently or it's hidden currently, which is explained in a number of ways. First, we see the hiddenness of Christ's crucifixion. The world doesn't understand how a dead man can save. We see that the secret, uh, the secret working of God inside of men and women. That's how gospel transformation happens, that God works inside of our hearts and our minds. We see that gospel growth that meets our needs and changes us in ways that we never expected. Sometimes we can have an idea of what we think good Christians are and yet God can come along and say, you're not getting that from the word. We see that the coming establishment of the kingdom of God in its fullness of glory is going to happen what's small and insignificant now, what seems small and insignificant now, will one day show itself in its fullness. And so we see we need the necessity, or we see the necessity of God-given insight. Jesus has said all throughout this teaching block, if, if we don't come to Him for this understanding, if we don't come to Him for salvation, we're never getting there on our own. There are a lot of people in the world, hear me well, there are a lot of people in the world who have a concept of Jesus in their mind, who might own Bibles, who might attend churches, who know nothing of the gospel's power to save. There are a lot of people who know the Bible better Inside and out, than Christians, that is, they know where verses are and they know when the books were written and how many authors contributed and what the context was going around when that particular book was written, and yet they know nothing of God. You know, the Bible says that Satan probably knows the Bible better than you. We need, brothers and sisters, we need eyes to see and ears to hear, and those are only given from Christ. Some people tend to think, if Jesus will just save me, I can figure out the rest. If he'll just give me or get me on the right track, if he'll just clear the way, I'll be, I'll be good. If he'll just buy me my gym membership, I'll go. That's kind of the attitude that a lot of people take towards Jesus. Just point me in the direction, Jesus, and I've got it from there. I don't really need your help anymore. One of the points of these parables is to highlight that without the special insight and guidance of Jesus Christ, we can never truly know God. Without the special insight and guidance that comes only through Jesus Christ, we will never understand the things of God. We will never understand how the insignificance of a shared message can change a life. This is not a self-help message. This is a, hey, you're dead and you need to be brought to life message. As I said earlier, this is why many don't evangelize. Because they attempt attempt it in their own power. They attempt it in their own conviction. A lot of times we find ourselves nervous and embarrassed and doubting. Many also doubt the power of the gospel because I said it often lacks immediate results. One of the major takeaways from Jesus' teaching is highlighted in verse 34. He said he did not speak to them without a parable. That's talking about the crowds. Remember we started this whole thing back in chapter 4. He's by the sea and the crowds are pressing him again and he's in the boat. And he says, "He did not speak to the crowds without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything." There is no salvation There is no understanding apart from what Jesus gives. We desperately need Him in every way. This is what He means when, in John 14, 6 when He says, No one comes to the Father except through Me. He didn't just mean He's the avenue or He's like the way to walk on. He meant unless He gives us the understanding. Unless He gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. Just bow our heads and pray. You see, the disciples must come to understand, in the story of Mark's gospel, the disciples must come to understand Jesus in order to understand that there is no insight. There is no salvation without Him. And so if you're here this morning... And you understand that while you may have known stuff about Jesus, you have never truly found yourself following Him. You've never trusted in Him for salvation. If you are hearing these things with fresh ears this morning, Jesus says, come to me for salvation. So that's you this morning. I invite you in the stillness of your heart to cry out to God, to repent of your sins and ask salvation of Him. And His Word says He's faithful to save. God, I pray that we would not hear this word passively. You call us in James to be doers of the word as well as hearers. So God, convict us as a people that even though we may not see great grand things happening with the gospel, we know that you are actively at work changing the lives of men and women and boys and girls around the world. You are actively at work establishing your kingdom in the hearts and lives of your people. So God, may we sing with that conviction. May we respond with that conviction. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand as we prepare to respond through song. If the Lord is dealing with you.